The Woj Pod is presented by QuickBooks. New business, no problem. Success starts with Intuit QuickBooks. Learn more at quickbooks.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with ESPN's Tim Bontemps, who has had a typically prolific week at ESPN. A number of big stories, but Tim, I want to start with your latest straw poll on the MVP race. It is telling a different story than just a couple months ago when it looked like Joel Embiid was was a clear favorite to win. Nikola Jokic has not only closed the gap, it looks like he's probably overtaken Embiid here with a couple weeks to go. Were, were you surprised to see um, how dramatically different voters were looking at this race? Um, here as we end, you know, really get to the end of the regular season, people are going to have to get their votes in. Yeah, I was a little surprised, Adrian. So I do the straw poll three, two or three times a year to try to get a sense of where the vote, the voting public is at for the MVP race. Because as we both know, it's a huge topic of conversation throughout the season. And so I try to get a couple voters from every market, some people from overseas, people who cover the whole league to try to really as accurately as possible, see where the race is at. And right before the all-star break, like you said, in the last version of the poll, Joel Embiid had a slight lead over Nikola Jokic, had more first-place votes. He's, he's kind of been the betting favorite all season, the guy people thought was going to win. Obviously, he's done an incredible job carrying Philly through what's been a pretty wild season with the Ben Simmons drama and everything else. But in the latest edition, like you said, Nikola Jokic has moved ahead. He's got 62 first-place votes. He's about 140 points ahead. And, you know, it's a decent lead. Um, and I was a little surprised. I thought it would be a little bit closer. But – thing people have to remember is in a vote like this where as close as it is between those two guys and Yas Tenenkupo, who was a pretty close third as well, basically the difference between this poll and the last one is 15 people changed their mind. So if 15 people changed their mind in the other way again over the final couple of weeks, or the voting pool is slightly different than the one that I do, which isn't the exact version of what the final ballot voting pool is going to look like, then I think Joel Embiid could still come back and win. Like last year when I did the last one, Nicole Jokic had 90 first place votes. So people argued to me, well, he shouldn't win. He might not win. Maybe somebody else will win. He was going to win the whole time. I would have bet my life that he would have won. This year, I think it's a lot closer. Despite the fact that there's a 30 gap vote in first place votes, it's still pretty close. And a lot of the people I talked to said they weren't sure about Giannis. They weren't sure about Embiid. They weren't sure about Jokic. They were their three clear guys, but they didn't know how to rank them. And, you know, the fact that Philly has had kind of a up-and-down month. They've lost a few close games to big teams, lost to the Nuggets. They lost to the Phoenix Suns. They lost to the Milwaukee Bucks. They obviously got blown out by the Nets. That, coupled with Nikola Jokic having a huge month, has moved them ahead by a little bit. But a couple weeks to go, there's still some time left for things to shake it, shake back up the other way, I think, if uh, you know, depending on how things shake out, particularly in the standings. You know, say Denver finishes seventh and Philly finishes first, you know, that could maybe be enough to tip it the other way. How much, Tim, do you think – winning and the fact that Jokic that they're not in the play-in right now that they're firmly in the Western Conference playoffs Mm -hmm. he's done it without Michael Porter for all but nine games he's done it without Jamal Murray for the entire season because I think the case it felt like the case against Jokic was well we can eliminate them because they're not good enough and then they are good enough and they've done it this year you know he is really certainly impacted winning but you can't say I, I, if they were a seventh or an eighth seed right now and Jokic was putting up these numbers, which have been historical, 
I mean, he had a m- month of March like nobody's had. Right. W- would this be is is that what is that what you think changed this race was winning? I think it's a combination of a couple things. I think winning certainly helps. You know, look, there are a couple games up on seventh. If they fall back in the seventh, like I said, I, I definitely think he could he could maybe slip to second or third. Um, I think the other thing too is that the Sixers have had kind of a disappointing month, right? Like the NCAA, the NCAA tournament really dominates people's thinking, as you know, the second half of March. That in the NIT for some people. <laughs> that in the NIT, but, that's um, right. <laughs> but uh but the kind of the if you think about the Sixers month of March, what do you think of? You think of that game on March tenth when they played the Nets and they got absolutely demolished, right? And I think the combination of you know, James Harden's play kind of being up and down, kind of being the main story around the Sixers, them losing some close games. Uh, Denver, you know, Jokic having a great month, having a couple signature performances. He had that 30-point game, or, you know, the game where he had, I think, 30 points in the fourth quarter in overtime to beat the Pelicans. He's had a couple massive triple doubles. Um, you know, I, I think it's all little things like that that sort of when you add them up was enough to just tip it a bit in Jokic's direction. But like I said, I do think the final standings, because of how close they are in the East and West, I I do think could play a factor here. And if, you know, both guys are in the middle of the conference, I think you got to feel pretty good about Jokic's chances. But if Philly wins the East and Denver's in the play-in, like that could be enough to sway things the other direction, I think. Like, you know, the three people that had Jokic in fifth place in the straw poll all indicated that a reason they had him that low was because Denver didn't, you know, was not as seen as having as, good of a regular season as other teams in the league, you know, whether it's Phoenix or Milwaukee or whoever. So, you know, it's, there's, it's close enough that I think things can still shift based off, you know, little things that might happen over the next 10 days or so. In in my memory, I don't know how far back, I'm sure it's been tracked forever, but Russell Westbrook winning the MVP in Oklahoma city in 2017, they were sixth in the West that year, right? Mm-hmm. Is that as low as anybody's won the MVP in the standings? Uh, Kareem did make the playoffs on one MVP in, I think, 1976 or so. Um, but yeah, definitely, it's definitely an outlier. There's only been a couple times when a guy has been outside the top three and won, for sure. Staying in Philadelphia, Tim, another story you had this week that could play, could play a real role in these playoffs and have a real impact. There's really four teams right now bunched up who potentially could end up playing Toronto in the first round. Toronto is in sixth right now. And Milwaukee, Miami, Boston, Philly are all teams potentially who could land in a first-round series with the Raptors. Both Miami and Milwaukee reiterated to you they are fully vaccinated Everyone would be eligible to play. Everyone would be eligible to travel to Canada where they are not allowing unvaccinated uh, players, athletes to come in uh, and play against the Raptors. Mm -hmm. Boston and Philadelphia would not confirm. They declined comment on whether they were all fully eligible. Uh, I think we have good, I think you've got good reason to believe there are, there have been unvaccinated players on those teams. Uh, in Boston and in Philly. And now that can change. Somebody could have gotten vaccinated yesterday. They could have gotten vaccinated this morning. So that's fluid. It could change. But as of your reporting and your conversations with those teams in the last 48 hours, they would not say that they were fully vaccinated. They didn't say they weren't. 
they declined to comment. So, Tim, the the possibility of either Boston or Philly going to Toronto in a first round, like let's say potentially, obviously a game three and four, how real is it? Having them well, go I mean, without players with with players who are unvaccinated who who will not play. Right. I mean, like you said, here's what we know, right? We know that two teams have said every guy will be available. And we know that and we know that two teams won't say every guy will be available, right? And you know, that means that there's at least a possibility that you're looking at, you know, two of the top four teams in the East going into what's gonna be a difficult series with the Toronto Raptors. I mean, this is a team when they've had their players healthy, they've been a very good team this year, above 500. You know, Nick Nurse is one of the best coaches in the league, throws a lot of crazy stuff at teams in the playoffs. They've got all these 6'9 athletes. They play a weird, funky style. Fred Van Vliet's a killer. He's had huge playoff games before. Pascal Siakam scored 40 in a finals game. Like, this is a team that is going to be a challenge if somebody's at full strength. And if one of these teams doesn't have everybody available, the Celtics are now without Robert Williams, too, uh, for the next several weeks because of his meniscus injury. So, um, you know, it's something to monitor. And like you said, maybe it'll all work out fine. And maybe these teams are vaccinated. But, you know, what we do know is two teams definitely are. And we do know that two teams are not willing to say. And that at least leaves open the possibility that they're going to be undermanned when they have to go to Toronto for not just games three and four, but if nothing changes, potentially a game six. I mean, how many times have we seen, you know, in a four, five, three, six kind of series? There's plenty of times where, the teams had to go on the road to win a game six to bring the series back home for a game seven. Like maybe we're looking at that scenario too. So certainly a story that's going to bear watching and for a player to be ready to play in game three, they're going to need two weeks to clear uh, the vaccine. If they get the shot, if they, you know, if they haven't got a shot yet. So if they haven't you're looking at about a week from now, when something's going to have to change for guys to be able to start playing in those first road games in the playoffs. So if that is the case, you know, there's a limited window where something can change before it's going to really start to have an impact if they have to play the Raptors. Yeah, and we know that if Brooklyn has to play Toronto, we know that Kyrie Irving will not be on that trip. That is correct. Whether that's in the play-in, whether that somehow ends up being in a playoff series. Listen, that that's – we have not heard – we have not yet heard the last of how the vac- how vaccine mandates may impact the season, this postseason. You mentioned Robert Williams – Tim and you know we he had the surgery yesterday on that meniscus it was really the best case scenario for Boston that it was not a full tear it was essentially you know an injury that it's called I think it's essentially called clipping the meniscus uh, as opposed to doing a, a repair the hope is that the team saying four to six weeks my sense is that's on the conservative side that there's real optimism it's closer to four weeks maybe even a little less. Four weeks takes us really essentially to the start of the second round of the playoffs. They could start on April 30th. They could start on May 2nd, depending on when series end. But the possibility that it's even less than four weeks is real. And uh, certainly for Boston, Robert Williams has been, they've been the best defense in the league over the last few months. They've been the best team in the league over the last few months, uh, along with Phoenix. But he's been so important to this team, his ability to block shots, certainly. But, you know, Boston is such, I mean, I think what makes them so great defensively, they are big, they are physical, 
They can switch everywhere, um, and they just make it hard for you. You know, you see them blowing up pick and rolls. They, they just, they just, the way that team is built. You bring in Derek White, another, uh, another outstanding defensive guard, to go along with Marcus Smart, who might be the. And you wrote about it today. I mean, Boston probably has two legitimate candidates for Defensive Player of the Year, and I think both guys yep. probably will be first team. Smart and Williams, they survive a first round series. I mean, we don't know who they're playing yet, but you saw them last night without Robert Williams against Miami, going toe to toe, and you know, not having him against Bam Adebayo and 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 the physicality of that Miami team. They're not the going to have to play Miami. Replay the 2020 Eastern Conference Finals in the bubble, where in the Bam bubble. just tore the Celtics apart and yep. beat them. You know, something yeah. to remember going forward. Did, Will they struggle without Williams in a first round series? They they can get they can get by who they have to play in the first round. I think it depends on who they get, right? I mean, I think if they're playing the Brooklyn Nets or if they're playing the the you know if they're playing the Raptors, depending on what the rest of their team looks like, then I think they could be in a lot of trouble. I think if they get Chicago or Cleveland, I think they'll be in pretty good shape. I mean, it's funny. I thought that getting Daniel Tice back at the deadline was a bit of an interesting move by the Celtics. He's got kind of a rough contract going forward. They're going to be an expensive team. Um, you know, they traded, you know, essentially three expiring contracts to take on Tice's deal. And look, now Daniel Tice is going to be a huge piece again for them. And he's once he's gotten back to Boston and kind of back into playing shape again after a weird half a season in Houston, he's right back to the guy that's been a really good player the past couple of years for the Celtics and was a good player in Chicago last year after they traded him at the deadline to get back under the tax after trading for Evan Fournier. And between him and Al Horford and Grant Williams, I think the three of them together can give Boston enough inside that they should be able to get through a first-round series without him. Um, You know, again, the Nets are their own challenge. We'll see what happens there. But, you know, to beat, in particular, the Bucs, but even, you know, any of those teams at the top of the East, you know, Robert Williams has really emerged into a force this year. You know, the first three years in his career, he's combined to play about 110 games. And whenever he got on the court, the talent was there. You could see it. But he said injuries crop up, little, you know, knick-knack things. He would admit he'd play a couple games and he'd miss a couple games. He never could get in a rhythm. And the Celtics signed him to a big extension last summer, four years, $52 million, and showed faith that he could be a real piece for them going forward. And Rob's come back and he played in a career high 61 games. Like you said, he's been a linchpin of their defense. He's a huge lob threat on offense. I think he's in the top five in the league in dunks. He gives them some athleticism and some ability to attack the rim. They just don't really have on the team otherwise. So he is a really important piece for them. And, you know, certainly I think especially if they want to beat the Milwaukee Bucks later in the playoffs, they're going to need Robert Williams playing at a high level. You know, they're not – I don't think they're going to be able to do that if they have any of their pieces out. Like you said, the thing that's made them so good the past couple months is they've had all these guys available, these seven, eight guys they play, and they all fit perfectly together and they're playing great. And I think for them to make the kind of run they think they can, after going 24-6, and six, even after two losses in their last 30 games, they're going to need everybody back and ready to go for those later rounds in the playoffs when they start facing the, the truly elite competition. You know, it's amazing, Tim. Just a few months ago, when Boston's hovering around 500, you're trying to figure out what value they have to even make trades to improve themselves. Do they have to include Marcus Smart in a trade to be able mm-hmm. to get anything back? And, you know, you've got a, a first-year general manager or president of basketball operations and Brett Stevens. He's never done this job before. you got a first-year head coach in Ime Adoka. And 
all of a sudden the questions you had about what's the leadership structure here, what does it look like, they've been answered. I mean, you look back to last summer, Stevens takes over. You know, he uses a pick to unload Kemba Walker, who they just didn't think could be a productive player anymore, certainly not at that salary. And they bring back Al Horford, who has really – you knew he'd have an impact with the group off the court because he always does, but you see the impact he's had on the court. And, you know, they resisted making dramatic change. I know people always – when you're – I mean, I thought it was outrageous to even talk about Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, that you would break them up. You build around guys like that. You don't trade them. You can never get value for Jalen Brown. Never. The idea of Ben right. Simmons was that's not good enough. And you you just – five nickels never, never equal a quarter in the NBA. Jalen Brown's a quarter. Nope. And Every team in the league is trying to find two-way – Elite young wing players. It was a Celtics it, it have was, two of them. It was an absurd conversation. You spend years right. and years and years trying to find guys like that, and yep. they have won before together. They've been to the conference finals. Now their roles yep. are elevated, certainly, especially Browns with Tatum. And then all of a sudden, this team clicks. And again, defensively at the very top, Ime has shown himself. You've seen him build relationships with this team, build trust, and is right there as a coach of the year candidate I mean I thought it's funny early in the year I kind of thought well you know Monty Williams has been very consistent and how good they've been and my sense is Monty Williams will win this and he'll be very deserving of it right but early on you thought is it Billy Donovan is it J.B. Bickerstaff I think those are both teams too where you had executive of the year candidates and Arturis Karnishevis Kobe Altman injuries have riddled those two teams and you know I think if they had been even a little bit health- healthier you'd look at maybe those coach of the year candidacies differently, but image right there. I mean, what he's done has been remarkable. And all of a sudden this is a Boston team that's set up to not just be good this year, to be pretty good going forward. There's the core guys are still young and you've seen development in Grant Williams and some of their younger guys, but it's, it's amazing how differently you just look at having Stevens, having email and just this run over the last few months, all of a sudden, by Sunday night, they got the first place in the Eastern Conference, which you just would not have imagined when they were at five, what, 24 and 24 at one point. Yeah, I mean, they were 23 and 24, and they were floundering. They didn't seem like they were going anywhere. They were hovering in, like, the bottom of the play in tournament race. I think they were in 10th place in late January in the East. And, yeah, I mean, the change, the turnaround they've had over the last couple of months has been as stunning as any I've ever seen in the league because not only have they had, like we saw the Heat a couple of years ago go from 11 and 30 to 30 and 11 in the second half. Play that team, nobody thought was actually going to make any kind of playoff run. They had a hot couple of months and improved their, their position in the standings. But the Celtics went from being a sort of, like you said, a mediocre middling team that was sort of their future was debated about to, you know, really making one impact trade getting Derek White and sort of remaking their rotation on the fly and everything just sort of perfectly falling into place. And now they've got eight guys who are all under contract in their primes, you know, then besides Al Horford, the other guys are all in their basically early to mid twenties and they all are really good at both ends of the court. They have the ability to grow together over the next few years. He may has really gotten these guys to buy in. You know, at the beginning of the year, people questioned his approach at times for how hard he was going at the guys sometimes, but they've clearly all responded to him. And you mentioned Brad Stevens. And look, 
the Kemba Walker for Al Horford trade, yes, they gave a first-round pick. But like you said, that was clearly a success. Horford has been a huge impact piece for them this year. It even saved the Celtics some money on the books. And to turn around and get Derek White at the deadline, you know, I remember when you broke that news on deadline day as I was working on Sixer stuff after the Ben Simmons-James Harden trade, my jaw dropped. I did not think a guy like Derek White was going to move. And I thought he was the exact kind of guy I've been saying all year the Celtics needed to get. A guy who makes quick decisions with the ball, who is a perfect fit next to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, can play on and off the ball, is a terrific defensive player, one of the best defensive guards in the league. You can roll him out there with Marcus Smart in the backcourt. You're going to shut down any opposing team. And the pieces all just really fit with the Celtics. And when you watch them play, it's like I said before, they need everybody healthy because if they need all those guys functioning at a high level to be as good as they can be. But when they're playing well, I mean, they've just been clobbering teams the past couple months. I mean, they've just been winning. They've been winning by a ton. And it's been just an incredible turnaround. And, yeah, like, if you're a Celtics fan, two months ago you weren't sure where your team was going. Now, like, you got a team that should be really good for the next few years, and it's, it's going to be very fun to watch. No, absolutely. Tim, as always, thanks for jumping in. I know, I know we'll catch up soon, man. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks for having me, Adrian. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Welcome back into the Woj Pod. Here with Tim McMahon, ESPN's NBA reporter. Tim, how are you, man? Doing all right, Woj. Appreciate you having me. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for jumping in. Let's start here, Tim. In the West, the Utah Jazz, who've dropped five straight games. It felt like they lost two or three games in one night the other night against the Clippers in L.A., blowing a 25-point lead in Paul George's return game. This is a team that there is a lot on the line. There is a lot that... that I think we all felt, certainly with the postseason, that this was a team that had to advance in the postseason, mm-hmm. that this was a, a an organization with a group of players that just needed to advance for lots of reasons. Is this a team, Tim, that you worry right now is going to be reeling as they go into the postseason? Are they, are they in a bad stretch or are they fractured right now? They certainly aren't, you know, you, you, when you're around that team, you hear the word connectivity a lot. You do not see it right now. It is, it is not happening. Uh, it's, it's felt funky all year long. It was obviously such a disappointing end to last year where they've got the top record in the league and then they just get wiped out by the Clippers in four straight games. You know, the, the closeout game, this was like a, a repeat almost of the closeout game, get a huge lead, blow it on that, uh, you know, the, the court formerly known as the Staples Center. And just all you, even when they were winning games this year, it never really felt right. You know, and, and there's always so much, hey, 
you know, what, how are Donovan and Rudy doing? And, you know, there's that, there's just kind of the, the feeling of if they don't make a deep run this year, you know, could this be the end of a chapter? Is it, is it that kind of, of moment for this franchise? Um, and I mean, it's really hard to look at the Jazz right now and have any sort of real optimism. Like you said, they've just lost five straight. Uh, they're going to end up facing either the the Mavericks or the Warriors, almost certainly in the first round. Um, you know, the the Mavericks are playing really good basketball for the for the last few months, and you know, the the Jazz look like a team that have a lot of flaws and not a lot of fight, and that's <laughs> a pretty bad combination. Yeah, it is. And listen, Quinn Snyder has been one of the best coaches in the NBA. Um, you know, certainly being a part of building this Jazz team that was a lottery team into, as you said, a team that had the best record and and a very, very good Western Conference. A, a, and all of a sudden trying to hold this together. You have new ownership. You have Danny Ainge now with, with a CEO title in Utah who's not – really attached to anything they built there or done. He's come in. He's looking at it, I think, objectively. Uh, you know, Joe Ingles, who had been, I think, an important fiber to this team, is gone out of their locker room, out of their lineup. You know, I think that has a little impact. I think Ingles played. He was a connector in that locker room and in that organization, and he's gone now. Um, and so you're right. I, I think – there is a fight right now in Utah, Utah to hold on to this course, to stay on a course of continuing to try to build pieces around Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you look at, I mean, if they started the playoffs today, Tim, the idea of a 3-6 series with Dallas, oof. Yeah, it wouldn't be. And, and we thought we were going to get a preview of that matchup when the Jazz came through Dallas the other night, and then Rudy had the the strange, you know, 40 minutes before tip uh, scratch where his leg, he just suddenly started feeling a sharp pain in his leg, uh, didn't play that night, got an MRI the next day, checked out okay, and then, you know, he was back in the lineup uh, for their loss to the Clippers. But, you know, even that, it's like every time there's a loss, people are listening to Donovan Mitchell, they're listening to Rudy Gobert, and, and people – Wait, did Donovan just take a shot at Rudy? You know, Donovan and I, you know, I said something along the lines of, "I really appreciate the guys who suited up tonight." Oh, was that a, was that a shot at Rudy? Uh, you know, Donovan mentioned how tough it is to change uh, your your game plan with forty sec or forty minutes left on the clock. Was that a shot at Rudy, or are these just factual statements? And the fact that you know uh, you, you hear Rudy after the loss of the Clippers, we don't get our hands dirty. You know, who who's he? Who's he taking jabs at, or or is he just speaking factually? But the fact that that's part of the conversation around this team constantly kind of speaks to the fact that, um, you know, even even when they were sitting in in the fourth spot, it just has not been a fun season for the Jazz. It hadn't been a fun last year for the Jazz ever since really going into the playoffs when they had the uh, the the whole thing with Donovan being a a strained scratch before game one of uh, of their playoff opener last year. It's, it's just been a rough go for that organization since. Tim, we, you mentioned the Dallas Mavericks, and kind of felt like there was – talking with Tim Bontemps earlier about this, and in Boston with a first-year head coach in Ime Adoka, 
And, you know, they're at 500 and they just go on this tear over the last few months. Uh, all the way, you know, Sunday night, they're in first place in the Eastern Conference. And mm-hmm. Dallas kind of started, they, they had an uneven, an uneven start early under Jason Kidd, who is not a first-time head coach. Um, this is his third head coaching job in the league, but new to new to Dallas this season. And they struggled early, and all of a sudden, similarly to Boston, defensively they get much better. Right. Now, I think Luka Doncic getting into better shape, mm-hmm. his just physically being able to uh, do some things on the floor maybe he wasn't doing coming out of the offseason when maybe he didn't come back in great shape. But but when you see sort of that turn in Dallas this season, what are the one or two things you really thought dramatically uh, really started to catapult this team? Yeah, and and you know I think the comparison of the Celtics is an interesting one because there are a lot of similarities. Like you said, new coaches who I think it took them a, a little while to kind of you know get their their systems in place, kind of get everybody not just on board but comfortable doing what they're doing and then slow starts by superstars who for the last few months have absolutely played at first team all nba you know mvp candidate type of levels and you know for the mavericks straight up the one of the biggest things is when they shut down luca he came back in significantly better shape he was you know he started the season at 260 plus uh, he's down in the 240s now um, even, even as heavy as he was early, he was putting up numbers, but he wasn't playing well. And if you watch the games, you saw that, especially on the defensive end. And, you know, I, I think it's a tremendous credit to Jason Kidd, to Sean Sweeney, their their defensive coordinator and, and Jay Kidd's lead assistant, that they had nobody envisioned the Mavericks being a good defensive team, much less a very good defensive team. And so for them to morph into this really good defensive team is a credit to them. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that their their scheme, their psychology, getting the buy-in from guys, and then they've got two guys who I think your, your casual NBA fans not going to be real familiar with Dorian Finney-Smith, not going to be, you know, real familiar. Put it this way, when, when Reggie Bullock signed the mid-level, <laughs> nobody had a huge reaction to that but those guys have well, been Tom, so Tom Thibodeau did in Boston because it, Tom Thibodeau in, in New York, York excuse me mm-hmm. he did have a reaction and he thought that was a player they were going to really miss they they have yes and and that's been right to the Mavericks benefit yeah and and both those guys uh got off to show slow shooting starts this season they've shot the ball much better over the last 3 months and and shot at the levels that they've done you know, for, for years going into this, but th- their most important thing is these are three and D role players who, who have such great versatility defensively. And so, you know, pretty much regardless of position, Finney Smith and Bullock are going to guard the two best uh, scorers on the other team. And they're both what I call kind of Swiss army knife type of stoppers where, you know, Bullock's really one through four, Finney Smith's one through four and sometimes even fives, you know, in a, in a game they won without uh, Luca when Sacramento came through. So bonus was kind of having his way for three quarters. They put Finney Smith on him in the fourth quarter. You know, he shuts him down, you know, and it's he can go from covering Sabonis one game to uh, Donovan Mitchell the, the next game. You know, the last two times the Jazz have come through Dallas, Mitchell had tough shooting nights. Finney Smith had a lot to do with that. You know, Bullock's the guy who – 
he will guard a lot of the, you know, he'll guard the Steph Curry's. He'll get uh, the John Morant's. He'll get, you know, against those really quick point guards, you know, as a as a six seven six eight wing. So I think those two guys, while they're not big names, they've had a ton to do with the Mavs' success. And then look, the Porzingis trade when that was made, they didn't pretend that you know they didn't pump it up as some kind of talent infusion in Dallas. It was about flexibility, flexibility and depth. Well, Dinwiddie's been a hell of a lot more than depth. He's bec- he has quickly become a core piece, and it's he has a lot to do with the Mavericks becoming this r- really dominant clutch team. They before. Uh, you know, uh, going into early February, the Mavericks were by statistically the worst clutch team in the NBA. I think some of that had to do with Luke was running out of gas a lot in fourth quarters. Um, <laughs> since then, they've been the best clutch team in the NBA. Dinwiddie's hit a couple of, of game winners. Uh, he's been part of some big comebacks. And, you know, he's a guy who, uh, if there was six man of the post break, he would be in that conversation. Um, but he's, he's definitely become a huge part of their core. Spencer Dinwiddie really kind of fits the mold of guys over historically who kind of find their way to Dallas on <laughs> yes. very good teams. Sort of guys who they just wore out their welcome somewhere else. They're talented, but you're never quite sure whether they you're never quite sure that they fit in the mix of other places. Washington was ready to get him out of there. Mm-hmm. He hadn't been there very long. And for there's something about that Dallas. You know, there's something about that Dallas environment that thrives or has thrived at different times around guys like that. And in some ways, you look, it's not surprising. Now, we'll see. Listen, he just got there, and we'll see what it looks like next year and year after he's on this contract. But but he just sort of, to me, fits the mold of the kind of guy who bounces bounces to Dallas, and all of a sudden he is kind of re, reimagined, reborn there. Nick Van Exel. Jerry Stackhouse, Jason Terry, you know, all these guys who became really good six men, great six men, and Terry, in Jets' case, six man of the year for the Mavericks. Um, and, and Dinwiddie definitely falls into that uh, that category. And look, the, the Washington thing was a mess, and he ended up getting a lot of blame for that. And he's talked very openly about that. He is hurt by just how much his reputation took a hit during his time in Washington when he was coming off of an ACL and then got off to a good start. And then, you know, there was a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of guys who, you know, were at a point in their career where they needed touches. They, you know, they wanted shots, you know, and, and he, what he's talked about in Dallas is there's very clear role definition. And frankly, Porzingis, this was, I think part of the fit struggle with Porzingis is Porzingis as much as he knew he was a not one B, but a clear cut number two to Luca. You know, they, there's still he wanted post ups. You know, he he wasn't comfortable just playing off of Luca. Where you know Dinwiddie comes in, he understands. Okay, hey, these guys need somebody else who can create off the dribble. But my job is to play off of Luca when he's not on the floor. I'll probably be on the floor with, with Brunson. We'll kind of share ball handling duties. They've got shooters around them, so he's like, wow, there's a lot of space here, a lot of room. Uh, to attack, and you know, I talked about guys like, like uh, Finney Smith, guys like Bullock. These guys, they're either going to catch it and shoot, move the ball, maybe attack a closeout, but they're not touching it very long. You know, Dwight Powell's not clogging up an offense with post ups. You know, we can go on down 
uh, the roster. And so there's there's role definition. And then the next level is there's role acceptance. And, and the way I've put it is with the Mavericks, they genuinely have role enthusiasm. Now, you know, is all that that's a good word. I, I've never I've never heard that word, but that's an interesting that's an interesting yeah, term. Role enthusiasm. Yeah, these, yeah, they not only understand what their roles are, but and embrace them, but they hey, this is great for me. Like we can win this way. They it's a bunch of guys who understand exactly how they can help a team win. It's working and they're having fun doing it. Now, the question is, you know, you have to go all the way back to, you know, ironically, the Dirk Mavs in 2011 to find a a one-star team that's won a championship. So the Porzingis trade was an admission that you're back to square one in terms of finding a co-star for Luka. You know, maybe some things break this summer where, where there's a possibility, maybe not. Uh, but the question is, is, is there a ceiling on a one-star team when, you know, the teams you're going to run into – uh, later in the playoffs, certainly are going to have multiple all-stars. Last thing, Tim, on Dallas, Jason Kidd's growth as a head coach, how he's evolved from Brooklyn, where he would admittedly, mm-hmm. you know, it is hard to be a first-time head coach to have not been an assistant. There's a lot of learning that goes on. And then the Milwaukee, where I think there was some more growth, but there were also some, you know, there were times Jason got himself sidetracked organizationally with the Bucks, and and I do think that year, I think the time with Frank Vogel in mm-hmm. in L.A. where he was an assistant coach, and he was around a, a head coach at Frank Vogel who was very certainly very proficient on the defensive end, you know, had been a head coach, had certainly had some success. Obviously, they won a championship with the Lakers that 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 time really helped Kid. And, and, and really prepared him to sort of kind of re, reset a little bit how he did the job, how he approached the job. What have you seen with Kidd in Dallas this year Oh, that might explain some of the success and growth you've seen with this team? Yeah, and I, th- I think that Kidd not just learned from his previous experience, as, as you mentioned, both his mistakes as a head coach, you know, uh, working the last couple of years under Frank Vogel, but he knew what went wrong under Rick Carlisle. He had played for Rick Carlisle. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are still with the Mavericks from the from the Carlisle uh, administration that that uh, kid knows very well. He knew exactly what he was stepping into, and frankly, he knew exactly how rocky things had gotten, how toxic things had gotten. Uh, in terms of the locker room head cl- head coach relationship, and he was going to err on the side of over communication, uh, not just with Luca, but on down the roster. And you know, if you go all the way back to the Mavs' first home game, they're playing the Houston Rockets, and they do kind of that you know Harry High School. Oh, we're going to play one through fifteen in this game, and by midway through the, the third quarter, all fifteen guys on the roster had played, and it was a camaraderie type of thing. And you know, kid mentioned after the game, well. You know, I met with our leadership council, and and they decided this was something they wanted to do. And people, I that NBA Twitter was lighting kid up. And but you know what, he was going to err on the side of overcommunication. He was going to build relationships, build trusts uh, with that with that group. You know, even you know, Porzingis isn't here. But he was going to try to get the most out of Porzingis, and that's why he he knew the numbers on Porzingis post ups. But he also knew that he needed 
this team to make a, a significant step defensively. That meant he needed Porzingis playing hard. So if it took post-ups to make him feel involved and feel part of things so they could you know, try to establish what they wanted to get done on the defensive end, he was going to do that. Um, he had a challenge with Luka. He, he, look, Luka showed up 260-plus, and I think there was some frustration from Kid, but he wasn't going to light Luka up publicly. He was going to work behind the scenes, and and they had to, you know, get Luca to commit to getting in shape. Um, but there, there's been a a major buy-in from Luca on the defensive end. And and look, we all understand Luca Doncic is never going to be an all defensive candidate. But the fact that this has been a very good defensive team for the last few months with him playing major minutes tells you that he is doing his part within that. And there's just, it's just a much better atmosphere. And I think the kid did a good job putting together a staff. You know, I mentioned Sean Sweeney before, who's been with Kidd at his previous stops, and nobody knows who he is. And he, he's, you know, this redhead flat top guy, you know, sitting on the sideline wearing uh, Nike Air Monarchs that I always make fun of him for. He <laughs> he's going to be a head coach. Sean Sweeney's going to be a head coach in the NBA. Well, I would say look at look at the Mavericks defense and give Kidd his fair share of credit, but also understand Part of being a head coach is bringing in good assistants, and Sean Sweeney's the architect of that defense. Uh, brought in Igor Kokoshkov. I always botched the last name. Kokoshkov. Thank you. I always botched his last name. Anyways. That's all right. So, the, you know, with Jamal Mosley leaving for Orlando, that was the assistant who Luca had a great relationship with on the previous staff. And you needed an assistant who had an established bond with Luca. And Luca and Igor, hey, they won a Eurobasket title with Goran Dragic uh, with the Slovenian national team uh, you know, before Luka came to the NBA. That, that's a long-time bond there. You know, Jared Dudley, a guy fresh off of, uh, off of a long playing career who's always had great – always been you know, a, a locker room connector type of guy throughout his career. I think he comes in and immediately uh, is able to establish relationships with players. It's, it's just a much better – vibe around that team uh this year than it, than it has been in a long time frankly and certainly than it has been at any point in lucas career no absolutely tim as always thanks for dropping in i know we'll talk more as we approach the playoffs and get into may and 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 maybe even june with some of the teams we're talking about so uh we will connect soon thanks again tim appreciate you thanks for having me Woj. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thanks to my guest today, ESPN's Tim Bontemps and Tim McMahon. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also listen to the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst and the Low Post with Zach Lowe. We'll catch you next time. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.